Hey, thanks for checking out this sermon. It's designed to help you take your next step with Jesus. And if you haven't been able to make it to one of our campuses and participate in the time of giving, you could do so online through our website or by texting to give so that you can continue to participate in the mission that God has given us. We hope that God speaks to you through this sermon. Cornerstone, you guys, you guys are looking great. The New Year's resolutions are already paying off. You can tell. Good work. It's good to see you. Hope, hope you had a good time uh, during the holiday season. We've got all those stresses from the holidays behind us, which is, which is great. So I hope that was at least a little bit relaxing for you on all of our campuses, for those watching online and joining us in the prisons. Uh, I know my holiday season was was super relaxing. I had a chance to go down to San Diego and visit family with, with my wife and son, and that was, it was so good for us, but I did have to work a little bit while I was down there. One of my former students from my days as a youth pastor here at Cornerstone asked me to do his wedding, and so we did a wedding down in San Diego during, uh, I think it was December 28th was the wedding, and it was awesome, but they didn't have me read 1 Corinthians 13, which I was really happy about, after I heard Pastor Steve say last week that as we are studying 1 Corinthians 13 through the Anatomy of Love series, that weddings were probably the furthest thing from Paul's mind as he wrote this chapter. So they, so they didn't ask me to read it, and, and I don't typically read that scripture during ceremonies when I perform weddings, but there is one question that I ask every single time I do a wedding uh, to the couple that's about to get married, and I ask this question. What annoys you most about the person you're about to marry? And I include their answer every time in the ceremony. Anyone who's here today that I've done your wedding, you know that I've talked about what annoys you most when it comes to your partner. And a lot of people would say, that's not the best question to ask two people that are about to pledge their lives to one another. But it's fun for me. So I ask it every time. The last couple weddings, I've actually gotten the, the same answer from one of the individuals that was about to get married, and it's an answer I actually get pretty often, and this is what the person said. He said they, they said, he or she, it was a different person each time, he or she is always late, and it came with like a lot of frustration. It wasn't like, he's late all the time. Like, he's always late. Like, are you guys gonna be okay? You still wanna go through with this? Or we? <laughs> and I can totally relate because, because I'm, I'm an on-time person. Like, I love being places when I'm, when I'm supposed to be there. How many of you guys are with me on this? You would say, I am generally an on-time person. I like that some of you are arguing, no, you're not. Like, you're my people. Those of you that just raised me, you're my people. Like, we like being there when you're supposed to be there. 
Okay, be honest. I want to ask those of you that might be the opposite. This is a safe place. No judgment. Raise your hand if you are generally a late person. Thank you for being honest, some of you. Some of you are like this. Here, here, here's something, I, I do appreciate your honesty, but here's something I have to tell you. For those of you who just raised your hand, you drive us on-time people absolutely crazy. Like, what's your problem? No judgment. But, but what's wrong with you? If you can't tell, this one hits close to home for me. I, like I said, I'm an on-time person, but my wife is a late person. Like, I'm ready to go 15 minutes before it's time to leave. She's ready to go 15 minutes after it's time to leave. I have to lie to my wife and tell her we're leaving 30 minutes earlier than we're supposed to just so we get out the door kind of on time. And, and I can tell you all of this because even though church started 30 minutes ago, she won't be here for another 15 minutes or so. <laughs> but, but I have to admit, I'm, I'm not proud of what the anxiety does to me that's caused when my wife is late. Like, I, I get frustrated. I get angry. Like, the other day, we were, we were driving, and, and I realized that I get really, really mad and irritated at the smallest things when we're late. So, so we're driving, and, and we were running late. It was her fault. We're running late, <laughs> and, and she sneezed louder than I thought she should. <laughs> so I turned her and said, how dare you sneeze that loud in my ear? She can't control her sneezes. But I was frustrated and I was anxious and I was impatient. And consequently, I was mean. Which brings us to the words we're studying today from 1 Corinthians 13, verse four. Here's what we read. Love is patient. Love is kind. Patience and kindness. Does anyone else struggle with these expressions of love like I tend to do? Yeah. You know, in our, in our current cultural context, most people would probably say, yeah, I'm an impatient person. Instant gratification and impatience are things that mark us as American citizens in 2019. We, we get upset when Google takes too long. We get angry when our phone doesn't load something quick enough. We get frustrated when we have to watch a commercial because we forgot to DVR the game. And we even get anxious in our careers. For instance, right now millennials are quitting their jobs at an alarming rate to find new jobs, mostly because they don't feel they're making a difference in the company that they've been in for a short amount of time or because they feel they aren't climbing the corporate ladder fast enough. In other words, there's a lack of patience. And, and I can totally relate, not just because I am technically a millennial, but because about a year ago, I read the book Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. And in the book, he claimed that it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert at something. And I was flabbergasted. Like, do you realize how long it would take me to become an expert at preaching? To become an expert at what I'm doing right now, like you're watching me do what I'm not yet an expert at. It would take years. 
It would take so long. I will have to be so patient to, to become an expert at this. And, and not only that, you'll have to be patient as, as you watch me during your time at Cornerstone. But there's hope. I've only got about 7,500 more hours of preaching left. So, so hang in there. Pastor and author Timothy Keller talks about impatience in a sermon I listened to recently. And he referenced the growing themes of fear and anger and anxiety in many people today, especially young people. He spoke of how when things are going well, young people are all okay, everything's good, but then as soon as, as there's this little blip, as soon as, as frustration sets in, and he referenced an article in Psychology Today that spoke of how young people, when frustration sets in, here's what, here's what we read. Mere frustration catapults these young people, catapults them into crisis. You're good, something bad happens, crisis, right away. You know, I think this is not just true for, for young people, but this is a tendency that's prevalent in most of our lives. When one thing gets a little off, we, we have a tendency to blow up, to jump from frustration to crisis. And here's the thing we miss. When we jump from frustration to crisis, the thing we skip is patience. But this is the way we're wired. We don't like waiting. I think that's why the proverb says patience is a virtue. It's not natural. Which is why my friend always says, patience is a virtue I want right now. <laughs> but why, why is it a virtue? Why do, why do good things come to those who wait? Why is patience so valuable? I mean, there are the obvious reasons. We, we can see them. Patient people are, are less stressed, less hurried, less busy. They make better decisions. They're more compassionate. I think this is why Paul wrote, love is patient and love is kind. Because what's the first thing that goes out the window when patience leaves? Kindness, right? Patience, patient, pe impatient people are typically not very kind people. Patience is so valuable in our lives and in our relationships. And even more so on a spiritual level. Patience, especially when things are less than ideal, can have such a significant impact. Richard Rohr, in his book, Everything Belong, writes, if one is not prepared to live in that temporary chaos, to hold the necessary anxiety that chaos entails, one never moves to deeper levels of faith or prayer or relationship with God. In other words... If we are unable to be patient, we will not grow in our relationship with God. Why is this? Well, I think it's because patience is a virtue we receive from God. It's an expression of his love that we receive. It's not something we try to, to do better at. It's something that flows from God to us and through us. A further study into the Greek word that we read here in 1 Corinthians 13, we, we see that this word is translated to macrothumeo, from macrothumeo. And here's what we could really say that macrothumeo means in the original Greek. To suffer long before giving up. To suffer long before giving up. Maybe today we would say to face trouble without losing it. Let me explain this by looking at another passage in scripture where we find the word macrothumeo. 
Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, where we read about Abraham's patience. And for anyone who's not aware of who Abraham is, he is probably one of the most revered characters, not only in the Christian religion, but in most major religions. Islam, Judaism, they all hold Abraham pretty highly. Christianity, we regard Abraham so much that not only do we read about him in the Old Testament, but he's referenced in the New Testament like we see here in Hebrews chapter 6. And for the sake of our study and conversation today, we could probably consider Abraham the most patient person in the Bible. Here's what we read in Hebrews chapter 6. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, and this is the promise from God to Abraham, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, and that's the word macrothemeo right there, waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Now, to really understand Abraham's long-suffering without giving up, which again, that's, let's remember that that's the definition of macrothemeo. It would help us to take a look at Abraham's life and what he actually had to wait for, starting in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 3, we learn of the fall of humanity. Adam and Eve decided to go against God's plan for their lives, and they chose their own path. Nine chapters later, in chapter 12, we see God zeroing in on a man named Abram, who we would come to know as Abraham. And God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. This promise is advanced further in Genesis 15 when God says to Abraham, hey, look up in the stars. Count the stars if you can count them. So shall your offspring be. The problem with this is that Abraham is really, really old and he doesn't even have one child, let alone enough children to constitute a whole galaxy worth of children. So Abraham begins to get impatient and anxious and his wife, Sarah, begins to get impatient and anxious, and Sarah comes up with this idea like, hey, God's taking too long. Abraham, you should sleep with my slave Hagar and have a kid with her. Now, this wasn't unheard of in those days. This is like a, think of like a surrogate mother. But regardless, this wasn't God's plan. Sure enough, Abraham has a child with Hagar when he is 86 years old. 86. But this was not the fulfillment of God's promise. This was not part of God's plan. 13 years later, in chapter 17, when Abraham is 99 years old and his wife Sarah is 90, God again promises Abraham. He says, you will be the father of many nations. You will be fruitful. I will greatly increase your numbers, to which Abraham laughed to himself and said, how many 100-year-olds who have 90-year-old wives are having children? And God said, you are. Sarah is going to give you a son, and you are to name him Isaac. Think about this. He is 100 years old, waiting for a child. I thought I had a tough time when I had a kid at 28. I was like, this might be too late. <laughs> He's 100 years old, waiting patiently for a child. That is some long suffering. But sure enough, Genesis 21, in his 100th year on the planet, Abraham has a son, Isaac. God began to fulfill his promise. But that's not the end of the story. Because then you flip the page and you see that there's a twist in this story. 
Genesis 22. This is where we're going to be studying today. Go ahead and turn your Bibles or your Bible apps to Genesis 22, first book in the Bible. Hurry up, we need to learn about patience today. Let's get moving. We're going to start right in verse 1. Here's what we read, starting in verse one of chapter 22 in the book of Genesis. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Okay, before we we dig in too much to this passage, I need to make something clear. Most Christians really struggle to understand why God would ever ask Abraham to sacrifice his son. Personally, I often wrestle with this specific chapter of the Bible. But here's where I've gotten with all this. As we study the, the historical context of Abraham's day, we learned that most pagan religions were into this child sacrifice thing. So it would not have been completely unheard of for a God to ask someone to sacrifice their child. But for those of us who are Christians, we've come to know God as a God who is defined by love. So why would a loving God, why would a loving father ever ask something so ludicrous of one of his people? As as we study today, I think we'll be able to take a step back and see the bigger picture as we learn that God had some vital information that Abraham did not have. And I think this information really helps us to at least grab a little bit of understanding about this story. But before we get there, let's look again at the first two verses. God tested Abraham. Sacrifice your son. Sure, it it wasn't unheard of, but it would have been no less devastating for Abraham to hear these words from God. It's almost as if Abraham is being asked by God through all of his patience and everything he's already long suffered through that God's saying, hey, Abraham, will you be patient when you don't know why? I think this is a great question for us to really begin our conversation today as we think of our own situations. Hopefully some of those situations are already coming up in your mind some of those difficulties that you find yourself in, some of those tough situations that you don't understand. Will you endure? Can you be patient in your struggles when you don't know why God has you in whatever he has you in? Will you trust his love for you? Will you long suffer without giving up? So God says to Abraham, take your only son, the son on whom the promise rests, the son from whom all nations will be blessed, the son you have been macro through mayoing for, patiently waiting, long suffering for, and sacrifice him in the region of Moriah. Abraham, take that which means most to you and sacrifice it for me. So early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. 
I always hold on to the fact that Abraham says we here, as if he knew that him and Isaac were gonna both return, as if he knew that this was only a test, as if he knew the heart of God. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but, but where's the, the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Don't, don't forget this phrase. God himself will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. Abraham and Isaac went on a journey to get to Mount Moriah. Almost like the long suffering of Abraham is to be prolonged. Climb the mountain, press on, endure when you know what is looming ahead. And so Isaac, with the wood on his back, climbed the mountain and walked to the place where he would be laid for sacrifice. And then when they got there, Abraham bound Isaac to the altar. After he secured him to the wood, he reached up the knife in order to slay his son, the son that he loved. And right before he went to sacrifice his boy, an angel of the Lord appeared and shouted, Abraham, Abraham, don't lay a hand on that boy. Now I know that you would not withhold your son your only son, that which means most to you from God. And th this passage doesn't tell us what was going on in Isaac's head the, the whole time. I mean, I mean if, if it were me and my dad almost sacrificed me, I probably would have held it over his head for quite a while. Hey, dad, can I have seconds? No, you've had enough to eat. Dad, remember Mount Moriah and the whole... Okay, go get some more food. I mean, there would have been some family tension moving forward, I can guarantee you that. You know, after the, the, the angel appeared and, and spoke to Abraham, and stopped the sacrifice, Abraham looked up and he saw a ram caught in a thicket of thorns and, and he sacrificed that ram as a substitute sacrifice. And he called the place, such a fitting name for this location, he called the place, the Lord will provide. I can't begin to imagine what was going through Abraham's head. After being patient with God's plan for all those years, not having a child, desperately wanting a child, only to have that child and then come that close to losing him. I think if I were in Abraham's shoes, to be completely honest with you, I probably would have given up on God. The pain and doubt and confusion would have been too much to handle. But that's, when, that's what happens when we look at our suffering only through the lens of what we know. When it seems like God is withholding grace or God is neglecting us, when we don't know why God is doing what he is doing, the thing that eludes us is patience which coincidentally enough is the first expression of love that Paul lists 
in 1 Corinthians 13. And I know I'm not alone in this. I mean, there are, there are so many people that come into my office for, for counseling and they wanna know, why, why is God absent in my situation? What's taking him so, so long? Where is he? And, and, and so often my response is completely uninspiring. I don't know. I don't understand it either. I know this feeling personally. I've definitely had this thought a few times in my life. Sure, God, you've, you've lived for all of eternity. Yeah, you wrote the book. Yes, you created this world we live in. You created the universe. But why do you think you know what's better for me than I do? My, my wife and I are tempted to ask this question, question when yet another week goes by and the local adoption agency calls us and says, there isn't a child for you this week. I mean, we're good parents, We've got a great home. We have the room. There are kids who need a place to live. What's the deal? Where are you, God? You see, it's in these sinful moments that I am attempting to understand and grasp that I can't miss Christ in the middle of what I perceive as my crisis. That if God is love and love is patient, then God is patient. And if I am to imitate God, then I am to long suffer through that which I do not understand. In the midst of my, my doubt, I am to remain obedient because I trust that God has some vital information that I do not have. Which this is a lesson we learn from Abraham in his life. He didn't understand why God was asking him to do what God was asking him to do, but he remained obedient and God did eventually fulfill his promises to Abraham. And I imagine that Abraham was fully aware that he could totally see that in all of his long suffering with God, that God remained patient with Abraham too. It's not just a one-way one street. I mean, let's remember, as Abraham was waiting for God's provision of a child, he had a kid with another woman because he's like, mm, you're taking too long, I'm gonna do it my way. At one point, he laughed at the absurdity of God still fulfilling the promise in his old age. Abraham was not perfect, but God stayed patient with him because God had vital information Abraham didn't have, and this is where we see the bigger picture. This is what has caused me to wrestle less with this specific passage, this chapter of our scriptures. That day on Mount Moriah, when God stopped Abraham from sacrificing his son, from sacrificing that which meant most to him, God had a much bigger vision than what Abraham could have ever understood. He had vital information that Abraham did not have because at the end of the day, this story was not about Abraham's long suffering, it was all about God's long suffering for all of humanity. You see, Jesus, would have walked a very similar route on his way to the cross. He would have walked right past the exact place where Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac, except this time it was Jesus with the wood on his back, not Isaac. You know, when, when God said, or when Abraham said, God will provide the lamb for sacrifice, Abraham didn't know it, but he wasn't talking about an animal. He was talking about the Lamb of God. 
Jesus was the lamb, God would provide for the sacrifice. Remember, it was a ram that Abraham found in the bushes. Almost as if God was saying through this story, the lamb will eventually be provided for the sacrifice, but not yet. As if God had been saying to to Abraham and to his people and to us all along, this is not yours to do. I'll sacrifice mine. I'll sacrifice that which means most to me because you can't take on this suffering. This is how it has to be done. You see, God had a bigger plan all along and there is no way Abraham could have seen it. I mean, the plan didn't unfold for a couple thousand years. But most of the world is aware of what that plan came to. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. The trip up Mount Moriah wasn't about sacrificing that which meant most to Abraham. It was about setting the stage for the sacrifice of what meant most to God, that he would send him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. He would send Jesus to save his people. And any Jewish person who would have undoubtedly known the story of Abraham, they would have grown up reading this story and hearing this story taught to them. And if they were able to take a step back and really see what God was saying about sacrifice and suffering and patience for his people, they would not have been able to miss the true lamb that would suffer on behalf of humanity. I mean, the parallels between this story and Jesus' story are uncanny. The true lamb lamb would suffer so that through him, the world could be restored. All the agony, all the pain, the hurt we experience because of the brokenness that exists beyond our control, he suffered to fix all of that. And suffer is exactly what he did. It's exactly what he continues to do. Think about this with me. God, God gave up his only son for the entire world, which is suffering enough. But it doesn't stop there because he gave up his only son at the risk of not being loved in return. There may be no greater pain that exists than loving someone who does not love you back. I mean, many of us here today have felt that pain before. And God can relate. Because by showing the greatest love, laying his life down for everyone, God made himself prone to the greatest pain, not being loved back. But this is what God risked when he sent his son for us and he remains lovingly patient with us through our journey. Like we read in 2 Peter chapter three, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It's, it's his patience and kindness that lead us to repentance, that lead us to, to turn to him. God long suffers with us when we fall short. He perseveres and pursues when we turn our back. He doesn't give up on us. He is so patient with us because he's our loving father. You know, I think when we hold on to this truth, we learn how to do something that is so difficult for me in so many situations of my life something that hurts and isn't fair and is extremely challenging. Being patient and long-suffering with and for those around me without giving up because I know how patient God 
has been with me. Here's the deal. We can't learn to long suffer with others until we learn how long suffering God has been with us. A quick survey of my life helps me to see how God has macro through mayoed, had patience through my, through my disobedience, through my sin, through my pride. And when I realize this, I can posture myself in such a way to receive God's patience. I understand that even though there are many times, these weak moments in my life that I've given up on God, that he has never, ever given up on me. I mean, how many times have I turned my back on God? How many times has God had a reason to complain about me or my actions or my offenses? I am, am a living I am living proof that God's patience is steadfast and true. I think this is how the, the whole patience and kindness and love toward others manifests itself in our lives. We receive God's patience when we realize the long suffering that has occurred on our behalf and we enable ourselves to be patient with those around us. As, as Timothy Keller writes, we would be more patient and kind with people and less hurt if we regularly remembered that we all have deep core faults. When I remember this, when I recognize and realize that I have deep core faults and I can be honest with the truth in that, I can be patient with my son when he does the exact opposite of what I tell him to do. I can be patient with Amanda when she is consistently late because I realize that she has to be the most patient woman on the face of the planet because she has to put up with me every day. But not only that, when I acknowledge my deep core faults, I can be patient with those who have wronged me, with those I disagree with. I can be long-suffering with the family member who, who seems to be ruining their life but not wanting any help. I can be patient in whatever I perceive as my crisis because I trust that God is patient with me. That even when I don't know why God is doing what he is doing, I can still receive his patience. If we can consistently remember that we all have deep core faults, patience and kindness will mark us as followers of Jesus Christ. You know, this may be a great next step for all of us this week. Find a way to practice remembering your shortcomings. I know that sounds like a fun next step. But, but I, I'm not asking you to do this as a way of like shaming yourself or getting down on yourself, but to remind ourselves that God still has great work to do in each of us, including myself. That there is plenty of room for growth in everyone, even me. And that's the beauty of this word macrothumeo. To suffer long before giving up. It carries this connotation of a journey, a process. It is a journey. Even when we don't see what God is doing in each and every situation we find ourselves in. You know, the other, the other day I was, uh, took my son to get some, some dinner and we walked into a restaurant. And I was paying for our food and at the counter they had some hard candies and Jericho asked if he could have one and I said, yeah, go for it, bud. And then I diverted my attention to the free chips and salsa because if it's free, it's for me. 
And when I look back at Jericho, I realized that his face was starting to turn blue and he was grabbing at his throat. And so I, you know, as quick as I could, I grabbed him and I started doing the Heimlich maneuver on him. And sure enough, the candy sailed across the restaurant after two um, Heimlichs or whatever you'd call that. And, and I checked on Jericho and he was okay. And right after that, this woman ran up to me and she, she, was, she was so panicked. She was almost hysterical. She said, is he okay? Is he okay? And I said, yeah, he's good. He was just choking. And she said, no, I mean his ribs. You are really rough with him. You know, I had some thoughts come here that fortunately did not come here. Stuff like, who do you think you are, ma'am? Um, but I, you know, honestly, what she, what she said got to me. And I walked away from that and I was like, am I a bad father? Did I just hurt my son? But then I took a step back. And I looked at the bigger picture and I realized that if I cause my son pain, but in the process I save his life, does that not make me a loving father? Now I believe that God is a loving father. And I believe that your temporary pain, your long suffering, whatever you are being patient through right now might be saving your life. It might be saving the life of someone around you, not just for now, but for all of eternity. Know that God has not given up on you. As you long suffer through whatever situation God has you in, if you're having a difficult time understanding it all, if you're struggling to love someone God has placed in your life through patience and suffering, if these things are causing you pain, the relationship you desperately want, the relationship you're in that's not going well, the relationship you had that's causing agony and pain, the medical condition that you can't explain and can't understand, the child who has wandered away and rebelled, the child you desperately want, the job that just you struggle through every day, whatever it is, whatever it is that's causing you pain, and I don't wanna be insensitive to what you're going through, but can I just encourage you with one thing? Don't give up. Be patient. Endure, persevere, macro through male. Receive this expression of God's love. And I hope that's what you've heard from me today. If you've thought that this message has been a reminder to go and try to be more patient, then I have not done an adequate job of communicating to you. My prayer for each of us is that in whatever we are up against, that you can receive this virtue of God, that you can rest in his patience with you and as a result, his patience will flow through you and from you in whatever you're up against. Because here's the deal. At the end of the day, there was a sacrifice of great love that was made on behalf of each and every single one of us. 
and no angel of the Lord shouted to stop it. The blade went through the body. There was no substitute sacrifice nearby because on that day, the son died and the father mourned. But that wasn't the end of the story. Resurrection, victory, life, so it will be for us as well. Just don't give up. To end our time today, I wanna ask that our band come out as we take a moment to sit and reflect and use this as an opportunity to breathe in the patience of God. I'm sure that as I was talking today, there were some situations that popped up in some of our minds that you are macro through mayoing through right now, that you are long suffering through. I wanna create some space in this moment for you to receive this virtue of God, this expression of love from God to just sit and take on his patience as you are patient in whatever situation you're dealing with. So maybe posture yourself in such a way that you receive from God, close your eyes and block out any distractions in this moment. As you surrender your long suffering to God and in turn, in return receive his patience. To start this moment, I'm gonna I'm gonna begin by reading a few of my favorite verses from Hebrews chapter 12. And I wanna read these verses over you as my prayer for you, my encouragement to you. As you sit and remain, don't go anywhere. Spend a couple minutes receiving from the Lord. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Amen.